Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to our first On Poly podcast for 2023. I'm Steve Pagan. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, remembering David Onley. Ontario's 28th Lieutenant Governor died last weekend at the age of 72 after a lifetime of championing the rights of people with disabilities. The Ontario government makes an historic decision on health care, opening things up to more private players. Ontario's Auditor General will decide this week whether to open an investigation into the Ford government's plans to develop the Greenbelt. And what happened to the Liberals during the last election? Same thing that happened to them in the previous election. <laughs> we'll discuss a tell-all party report. It's Tuesday, January 17th, 2023, so let's get to it. JMM, normally off the top, you and I do a little chit-chat about something that's, uh, well, it may or may not be related to Queen's Park, but this week, I think we have to use this time to remember one of the greatest champions people with disabilities ever had in the province of Ontario. David Charles Onley was our Lieutenant Governor from 2007 to 2014. He died on Saturday after suffering from increasingly poor health recently. David contracted polio when he was just three years old, and it obviously affected his whole life since he needed a motorized scooter to get around, and that gave him a passion for moving the yardsticks on disability issues that really drove him his entire life. I got to Queen's Park just in the very last year of his tenure as Lieutenant Governor, but uh, you and he knew each other for more than three decades. Uh, What was he like? That's true. We knew each other. I think we first met when we were street reporters. Uh, He was with City TV, and I was at CHFI, and we'd bump into each other at press conferences and that kind of thing. And, you know, I, I can't swear by this, but I'm willing to bet that he was the first physically disabled person to regularly appear on any newscast anywhere in the country. Uh, Moses Neimer, to his credit, put him on television on City TV. And I think at first, David was worried that he would only be shot from sort of the waist up so that people would not be able to see his disability. And he said, no, I want you to shoot my whole body. Shoot like shoot the whole thing. Uh, we've got to make it sort of more, just a more typical thing to see people with disabilities on television, in the community, wherever. So he was a pioneer in that regard. He actually, I don't know if people know this, he applied to become lieutenant governor. That's how it worked back then when Stephen Harper was the prime minister. You actually had to put in an application and then the prime minister's office considered all of the applications. And he was driving up the Don Valley Parkway one day when his phone rang and they said, can you hold for Prime Minister Harper? And that's how we found out. And the prime minister called him, told him that, um, you know, he was a, a he was personable. He was bright. He conducted himself with dignity. And therefore, how'd you like to be lieutenant governor? And and he said, yes, obviously. And what's your strongest memory of him from his time as lieutenant governor? You know what? That's that's an easy one. And, um, and, and I did a column about him, which I hope people will look for as well at TVO.org, our website. The day he was sworn in as lieutenant governor, and we're going back now, September 2007, the tradition is that you, you come into the main chamber of the Ontario legislature, and then they swear you in, and then you go into the speaker's chair, and you give your speech. And they did all that. And then, of course, David Unley couldn't get the scooter up the stairs. So he had to get out of his scooter and walk up those three stairs 
to be able to sit in the speaker's chair so he could deliver his inaugural address. And John Michael, I'll tell you something. Uh, I'll never forget it. You could hear a pin drop in there. And you and I both have been in that chamber enough to know it's never quiet. There's always heckling or speaking or yelling or whatever. It was so quiet. And it was so quiet because we all held our collective breath that David only was going to be able to make it up those three stairs and get into that chair. It was not easy, let me tell you. You know, his, his, he wears the scars of his polio. He, he always did. But he did. He made it. He got up to those stairs. He got a massive ovation, gave a great speech, and, um, and I'll never forget that. The flags at Queen's Park are at half-mast in uh, memorial of uh, the former lieutenant governor, uh, also at Toronto City Hall. Uh, we don't have any public details yet about uh, funeral arrangements, but uh, once again, uh, David Onley, Ontario's former lieutenant governor, uh, dead at age 72. Okay, let's continue with this. Regular listeners will know that we usually start with listener feedback. So here goes. We got something from Evan Bottenheimer, who tweeted us saying, One of your videos showed up on my YouTube feed, the one about premiers being the head of the party without being elected. I've never felt so informed in such a short amount of time. I hope to encounter more of your videos on YouTube. Happy New Year. Well, thank you, Evan. You are referring, of course, to our Nerds on Politics series with... Uh, JMM and I both do these short videos on various things of um, nerdy appeal in politics. Uh, We did one on how you can become premier without actually having a seat in the legislature. That's the one you're referring to. Uh, We did the new strong mayor powers of Toronto and Ottawa uh, that those mayors now have. Uh, There will be more to come, we assure you. So keep an eye out. Uh, Yeah, we've got a few coming about uh, the rules of what you can and can't say in the legislature, which uh, I I had some fun with. Uh, We have a question for this week. Andrew Mugford asks, what's the difference between a warden, a mayor, and a reeve? Mm -hmm. And uh, the answer here is that mayors and reeves are the elected heads of council for municipalities. It just depends on uh, the type of municipality, what title they use. But they are uh, a head of council who is elected by all the voters in that municipality uh, for, at least in Ontario right now, a term of four years. Wardens are the head of a county council, and uh, only some parts of southern Ontario have county governments anymore, um, and none in northern Ontario. Uh, County councils are not directly elected. Rather, the councils are made up of local representatives from the various uh, smaller municipalities within the county, uh, and the warden is just uh, designated the, the leader from among them. You know what? I never knew that. <laughs> That's good. That's I had good. to do some remedial reading this morning as uh, we were prepping this. Okay, so you didn't know that off the top of your head. You actually had to look that up. I, I did look it up. You know, there's that a lot makes of things me feel that I, I, I look up just to make sure I've still got it straight in my head. <laughs> good stuff. All right. Well done. All right. Now we know the difference between a reeve, a mayor, and a warden. That's good. And if you'd like to ask uh, any other questions, uh, well, about Ontario politics at least, please feel free to email us at onpoliticsattvo.org. Now, on to issue one. But when it comes to your health, we must do more. And we're doing more. Today, we're taking action to reduce wait times for surgeries. We're expanding community surgical and diagnostic centers so you can get surgeries you need faster and closer to home. 
The Premier and his health minister on Monday announcing some pretty significant changes to the way we're going to do health care in Ontario. The gist of the announcement is to decentralize services out of hospital settings and allow more private players to offer those services, which would still be covered by OHIP, Ontario's health insurance plan. Now, just before we go any further, i got to do one of these full disclosure things. My wife is a health policy consultant. Uh, all of these issues are in her bailiwick, so we put that out there for everybody to know in the interest of full disclosure. So the announcement today uh, is basically part one of what the uh, progressive conservative government is calling a a three-part plan. The first step would be to uh, allow existing what are called independent healthcare facilities in Ontario to do more of uh, the kinds of surgeries that they are already uh, doing. So cataract surgeries, for example, uh, the government is saying that uh, up to 14,000 procedures will now be performed in these facilities each year. Further into the future, a second step would involve uh, what they're calling an expansion of non-urgent, low-risk, and minimally invasive procedures. Uh, Not uh, a huge amount of detail from the government today on uh, what that might entail. And then a third step uh, would involve private clinics being allowed to conduct hip and knee replacement surgeries uh, as early as 2024. Uh, 14,000 procedures in a year is, uh, it, it sounds like a lot, but I just do want to give people some uh, context of the scale here that Ontario public hospitals perform uh, 400,000 what are called day surgeries every year. These are the kinds of procedures we're talking about. So even if the government does manage to get 14,000 procedures moved into these private uh, clinics, these private care facilities, uh, that will be about three-ish percent of the uh, the overall volume of procedures in Ontario's healthcare system. Now, I guess we can follow this up by, well, I, I can imagine people are asking, is this new? Do we Do we have private independent health facilities in this province that do this kind of thing? And the answer is yes. We've had it in many cases for 35 years. I think it was David Peterson's government in the 80s that brought in the first Independent Health Facilities Act. But you can go back even further than that. We've had the Shouldice Clinic north of Toronto in Markham, I believe. It's a private hospital. It's considered the best in the world for doing hernias. And um, it was so good that the former late leader of the NDP, Jack Layton, when he needed hernia surgery, went there. And um, at As the Premier said today, this is the kind of place where you go and you present your OHIP card, not your credit card. These services are all covered by Medicare. Now, the underlying philosophy I gather behind this announcement is, why should every insured service be required to take place in a hospital setting, particularly if those procedures are relatively simple? You mentioned hips and knees, cataracts. I mean, these are the kinds of things that will be done there. If they can be done safely by talented personnel uh, in a standalone clinic, The government is of the view that that is now something they want to pursue further. Let the hospitals do the harder, more complicated procedures. Why have them inundated with simpler procedures, which can be done elsewhere and probably more cheaply? That's the gist of the announcement. Um, I guess the reaction did not take much time to come in, and you've got some of it waiting for us to hear. Right. Perhaps uh, unsurprisingly, the opposition parties at Queen's Park are opposed. Uh, We got press conferences with both the uh, NDP, I guess we still have to refer to her as the incoming NDP leader, Mm -hmm. uh, Marat Stiles has not officially uh, been named the leader yet, Uh, but Marat Stiles gave a press conference as well as a liberal health critic, uh, Adil Shamji, uh, both strongly opposed to this, uh, both raising a number of concerns about uh, what the expansion of private care could mean for health care. Two 
two very uh, broad concerns that they raised. One was whether the government would uh, impose any kind of controls to prevent private clinics from, I don't want to use the word coercing, but pressuring uh, patients into more expensive procedures that might not be covered by OHIP. Upselling is what they call it. Yes, uh, upselling. Um, and, uh, you know, the other uh, big concern, and Shamji in particular hammered away at this, you know, how do you protect the human resources of the public hospital system uh, when it seems plausible, at least, that these uh, private clinics are going to be able to lure uh, workers, nurses, others out of the public hospital system with the promise of higher wages. Again, in this context, you have to keep in mind that Bill 124 applies to healthcare workers and, and caps uh, uh, compensation increases. So those are some obvious big concerns that were raised. Uh, obviously, then, you know, you also have other groups. Uh, major healthcare unions have, have uh, said they are uh, opposed. Not totally surprising, given that they tend to represent workers in the public hospitals and tend not to represent workers in uh, private clinics. Uh, the, the, the This was an odd one, and this actually got the premier uh, reacted pretty strongly uh, in uh, this morning's announcement. Uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, the, the governing regulatory body for uh, doctors in Ontario, was very critical of this proposal and 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 worried about its uh, effect on the public health care system. And, and the premier really was quite critical of their criticism. The point the premier made was that the CPSO is the one that is currently responsible for regulating these clinics and was basically saying, like, are is the CPSO telling us that they can't do their job? Like, <laughs> it was, it was, uh, it was about the sharpest we saw the premier get uh, during this announcement. It was, it was um, unusual. Well, one of the words we're going to hear a lot of as this debate unfolds is the word privatization, and certainly opponents will see this as increasing privatization of the healthcare system, and they would like the publicly funded healthcare system to be held in as many public hands as possible. If I can, that's probably a terrible way to describe <laughs> it, but they would like the system to be as public as possible. And they question whether bringing more private players into the system is consistent with Medicare. Uh, I think the premier and the health minister, for what it's worth, responded by saying, every time you go to your general practitioner, your family doctor, that's a, that's a small business person. Yeah. I mean, that person runs a private business. If you go have your blood tested at a clinic or if you go for an X-ray or you go for a mammogram in a standalone clinic, those are privately operated for-profit clinics. Um, there is a considerable amount of the healthcare system that is already held in private hands. And I guess the feeling is, so would this be as well? Their attitude is there's a huge backlog, not totally because of COVID, but certainly contributed to because of COVID, that needs reducing. And if we can get doctors who have a finite amount of surgical time available in hospitals to take the time that they can't get into hospitals and go into independent health facilities and do their thing there, and that reduces the backlog, and it's covered by Medicare, all to the good. That's the government's point of view on this. It's one thing to say that uh, independent clinics will be able to take some of the workload off of public hospitals. One thing that I think a lot of people are going to be watching with some concern is whether we see uh, a very large expansion of like new independent clinics as well. Certainly, the premier did not close the door to that. Uh, seems to welcome the idea of uh, uh, you know private business uh, uh, starting up more of these clinics. You can see why from the government's perspective. I mean, if this means that the government doesn't have to build a, a new billion-dollar hospital somewhere. From the perspective of, of the government, that's a bonus. Okay, on to issue two. At the end of the day, we need more homes. We're going to see over 300,000 people in the next 
year or two showing up to the province. They're going to show up to the greater Toronto area. I was speaking to the mayor. The numbers I understand, um, you know, there's going to be 800,000 people by 2050 here in Hamilton. And it also adds to their, their tax base. And that was Premier Doug Ford being asked in Hamilton last week uh, about the uh, reaction against the government's changes to the green belt that is uh, intended to constrain sprawl around the greater Toronto area. We had a few items related to the green belt in the last uh, week or so. Perhaps the most intriguing is that uh, the uh, Ontario Provincial Police are uh, doing the preliminary work to determine whether they will open an investigation uh, into the uh, changes uh, around around the Greenbelt. This is the anti-rackets division of the OPP, the uh, same division that historically has handled uh, public corruption cases, if I can uh, use that kind of language. Uh, Both the uh, premiers Wynn and McGuinty had the let's say, misfortune to have run-ins with the OPP. People may remember the the so-called gas plants emails scandal, which saw a former assistant of uh, McGinty get charged, and uh, one of them was actually sentenced uh, for uh, their their involvement in that. Uh, And then Premier Wynne also had assistants who were uh, charged by the OPP. That court case did not result in any convictions. Uh, But I I mentioned all that history, aside from the fact that we always love to go down uh, memory lane here on this podcast, but I mentioned that history only to to say that, you know, we we don't know, uh, the OPP has not yet formally uh, started an investigation as far as we know. They they certainly haven't made any charges public, but that gives you an idea of the kinds of things that this part of the OPP does. Some uh, MPPs have, have raised the prospect of uh, a breach of trust charge against uh, the government. That is a, a, you know, a serious criminal charge that was pursued in these prior cases that I uh, uh, have mentioned. So it's, it is a, uh, a very intriguing uh, moment. Uh, We don't know if it will materialize in uh, actual uh, criminal charges being pursued, but uh, certainly uh, (laughs) not a headline that any government wants to see. That's exactly what I was going to say. We don't know what's going to come of this, but certainly no government wants to see the Ontario Provincial Police sniffing around their business with the thought of potentially investigating and laying charges. Uh, Before we go any further on this, I got to do this again. (laughs) Here we go. My brother is a home builder in the Hamilton area, so full disclosure on that. Now, the story we're about to talk about deals with Greenbelt land in York Region. Nothing to do with anything in Hamilton-Wentworth, but I put the fact that he's a home builder and he's my brother on the record anyway in the interest of full disclosure. The, The open question that a lot of people are looking at now is whether what happened in York Region passes the smell test. You've got some very big billionaire developers up there who purchased some land that was in the Greenbelt. They purchased that land relatively recently, and then a relatively short time after they purchased it, the government made a decision to move that land out of the Greenbelt. They moved other lands into the Greenbelt. They made an exchange, but the land that those developers purchased in the Greenbelt is now eligible for development. Yes, it's possible all of this happened very innocently, and it's a coincidence, and there's nothing to it. But it sure looks curious. And a lot of people, you know, who've talked to me about this issue say, Steve, it may be legal, but it don't pass the smell test, you know? So thus the investigation. And separately from the OPP, we are also expecting to learn this week whether the Auditor General's office will also be looking into this. People may recall that uh, the Auditor General... uh, 
currently Bonnie Lissick, though uh, this will be her last year in the, that office. Earlier in the Ford government's tenure, they combined the role of environmental commissioner into uh, the Auditor General's office. So uh, Lissick has been asked to take a look at changes to the Greenbelt from both a financial perspective and also an environmental perspective. We expect to learn this week uh, whether her office will in fact conduct that uh, investigation. It seems like a, a, <laughs> a pretty obvious candidate for the kinds of investigation that her office uh, has done in the past. Uh, you, you know, just to give our listeners some idea of the, the kinds of financial impacts, and I think the environmental ones are pretty obvious, but when we talk about financial impacts, you know, uh, housing development has all sorts of implications for public infrastructure, roads, sewers, uh, water, uh, and uh, you know, there's a, a very long-running argument. I mean, one of the initial strongest arguments for constraining sprawl uh, back when uh, you know the liberals first went in 2003 it was not so much of a concern about uh, climate change at the time it was about preserving municipal budgets because sprawl is is very uh, intensive on infrastructure you have to spend a ton of money on sewers and at least historically uh, municipalities haven't always balanced their budgets terribly well on that. Anyway, I, I put that all uh, out there as the kinds of things that the Auditor General might uh, investigate. We will, uh, as I say, learn later this week whether uh, her office does in fact do an investigation. Well, the Ontario Liberals are in the midst of an unprecedentedly bad time in their political history. Twice in a row now, they've come third. That's never happened before. They came third twice in the 1940s in two elections, but it wasn't twice in a row. They've done that now. Three party insiders consulted widely with party members, staffers, candidates, and so on. And those three have written up a detailed report about where things went wrong in the 2022 election. And it concluded by saying the result of the 2022 election was devastating and disappointing for Ontario Liberals. JMM, why don't you pick up some of the details in the story? Yeah, I wrote about this for our website at tvo.org. And uh, maybe the easiest thing to do is just quote parts of uh, the report itself. Uh, A survey of the party's own membership uh, said that Quote, a strong majority of participants felt our leader was unpopular and that the OLP campaign failed to address this issue. Uh, they say that the, the leader was often insulated from the ground realities of the election campaign and that the party's uh, platform in the 2022 election, quote, missed key issues, was not well-timed and was not well-developed uh, and lacked a key and consistent message, a vision of what the province under the Ontario Liberal brand should look like. Are there, well, there are, there are recommendations for the party going forward that were in the report. You want to take us through some of that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the party postmortem that we're talking about here uh, does recommend a, a consultation on the process of selecting a leader. Uh, two-thirds of the survey respondents said that the, the leadership race that Stephen Del Duca won in 2020, they don't want to see that kind of race happen again. They want to see a race uh, be restructured to be more inclusive. Uh, they want to find ways to keep keep the party's previous candidates involved in the party so that there's a bit more uh, institutional memory. Uh, 78% of the candidates in the last election said that they would consider running as uh, a liberal candidate again. I suppose that's not bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And they uh, say that the party really needs to prioritize uh, obtaining and connecting voter data because they felt in the uh, 2022 election they were uh, really limited. They didn't have the same quality 
quality data that the uh, Tories and New Democrats had. Uh, particularly, apparently, they didn't have uh, good data on cell phone numbers. So the party will now have its annual general meeting in uh, March, uh, and they will propose uh, constitutional amendments. They are very likely, I think, to uh, revise the leadership process. Uh, Stephen Del Duca won a delegated convention model that was uh, already, uh, I think uh, people would say, maybe out of date. Uh, the last major party in Canada that I know of that, that still does delegated conventions. And uh, there was a t- uh, an attempt back then to try and move to a one member, one vote. They didn't have the, the support in the party to do that. I suspect they will have more support this time. They actually got a majority of support, but they well, needed a super majority. Exactly, right? They needed, I think it was that they needed two thirds, mm-hmm. then they had 55%. So. It's not all uh, bad news for the party. Uh, Stephen Del Duca does get credit from the party for clearing out the party's debt, which is no small feat considering where they were in uh, 2018. But, uh, you know, a lot of, I would say, bad news overall uh, from that analysis. Uh, Can I say something heretical here? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I know the liberals are in the midst of doing this big self-flagellation thing, but if there's one thing I've learned over the years, it's that I know all the wise guys in the back room disagree with me on this. I don't think every election is winnable. And I think the fact that you lose an election, um, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that things were going to hell in a handcart for you. It may well be that you just really never had a shot to win this election. Uh, I mean, as I look back on it, and I kind of thought this at the time, I saw a path there for Doug Ford and his progressive conservatives to win the re-election that they did win. I never really saw a path to victory for the certainly not the liberals who were in third place going into that election, or even necessarily the NDP. Now, at the risk of relying too much on history, here is the reality. For the last 155 years, every first-time premier of a new party in power has won a second term with only two exceptions— Bob Ray and Ernest Drury. Okay, think back. Bob Ray won his one and only term with the NDP in 1990, did not win re-election. Ernest Drury won his one and only term with the United Farmers of Ontario in 1919, did not win re-election next time out. In other words, if you're a new conservative premier or a new liberal premier, as in coming into power, your party for the first time, you always get a second term. You always have. There's something about Ontarians that seems to give Liberals and Tories a second chance. And I think we shouldn't underestimate how much that historic trend was at play in this 2022 election just finished uh, whenever it was ago, back in June. Six months ago. Yeah, Yeah. six months ago. Feels like longer some days. It does, yeah. Um, No, I, I think that there's a lot of truth there. I think the campaign strategists would never in a million years want to admit that Sometimes it's just not a winnable election. Because they'd be out of work otherwise. Well, yeah. And I mean, even if they weren't out of work, can you bill as much when you're saying, ah, I, I don't we know. No yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that what this exercise that the liberals have gone through uh, does show, and, and I, again, I wrote this uh, for our website, I, I think the, the concern that it raises for me is that almost all of these complaints that were made about Stephen Del Duca many of them were made about Kathleen Wynne as well. And I think there's a very uh, important question here about whether the the institution of the Liberal Party is able to listen to its members. And it might not be possible to, right? The, it, like the, the, some of the complaints, it just may not be a reasonable request in a modern political party, right? I mean, you're never going to get 
the members of a political party saying that they're just fine with all of the important decisions being made in the leader's office, and they absolutely <laughs> don't want to to have any useful input. Of course, the like the local riding associations are always going to say that they they think that more important decisions should be pushed out to the 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 riding associations and and the membership of the party. I don't know if that's a realistic way for a party to win in the 21st century when the leader is going to end up having to wear every single decision that happens under their brand anyway. Maybe somebody will crack that code. Maybe somebody will figure out a way to to make the base of the party happy while also being politically competitive. I, I don't know. And and I, I it will be interesting to watch if somebody can actually fix that. Stay tuned, everyone. One last thing. Okay, JMM, do you remember when we used to do the, uh, you know, it was, what do we call it? The quote of the week thing. We do this quote of the week. Yes, I, I do have some vague memory of that. <laughs> well, we stopped doing it, I don't know, about six months ago or so, and we put some clips higher up in the podcast. But we still want to, from time to time, include some notable quotes occasionally on the pod before we wrap up. So here's a new segment, which we will return to from time to time, called Quote of Note. We didn't actually make that up. We stole that term from TVO Today's editor-in-chief, Graham Bayless. So thank you, Graham, for transferring over the intellectual property rights to quote of note. So this week's On Poly quote of note comes from two very strange bedfellows. Premier Doug Ford made an announcement in Hamilton last week. He made that announcement with the new mayor of Hamilton, Andrea Horvath, who, of course, used to skewer him on a daily basis when she was opposition leader at Queen's Park. And uh, you can imagine the two of them had a bit of a yuck over that at their news conference. I also want to welcome Mayor Horvath, who I'm thrilled to be standing with instead of standing across the aisle from her. (laughs) uh, But, you you know, uh, the mayor and I had an opportunity to chat, and I'm just so happy to be here with the mayor, and we're going to do everything we can to continue building uh, Hamilton into they're already a great city, even a, a better city under her leadership. Uh, and I was saying on our way in, uh, I like talking to you this way. It's quite different, but uh, but productive for the city of Hamilton, and I'm I'm very pleased about that. That's Premier Doug Ford and Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath in Hamilton last week, proving once again that where you stand very much depends on where you sit. You think the Premier might have uh, an announcement to make in Vaughan anytime soon? Wouldn't that be funny seeing him up there with Stephen Del Duca? I mean, it would be about the only time they've been that close in the last few months. <laughs> Got that right. Well, that is the On Poly podcast for Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. Our first episode of 2023, done, dusted, good to be back. Right on. Please remember to check our weekly On Poly newsletter. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I riff on a story that emerged last week, namely the revelation that the Premier's office is editing the Medical Officer of Health's press releases. And whether... Maybe we ought to be a bit concerned about that. Any feedback you have, we are happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. You can also check out our new podcast, Art, created by our in-house designer, Jasmine L. Kurd. I think you look pretty snazzy. I'm not sure. I think I look my age. I think you look pretty snazzy. That's my opinion. Well, thank you. New year, new look. Yeah, you're exactly right. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Shahir Tajvidi. Production support from Tiffany Lamb, Nikki Ashworth, Carla Lucetta, Daniel Kitts, and Jonathan Hallowell. COVID is not over yet, people, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs> <laughs>